0: I have a Where the Wild Things Are tattoo on my arm. I'd had smaller tattoos before that, but it was my first really big tattoo.
1: Julie Murphy is a best-selling writer. It's Max
0: and the wild thing with, like, the orange and yellow striped shirt and them just kind of, like, dancing about.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's some serious devotion right there. But really... What was it about this book that moved Julie enough to get a tattoo on her
0: arm? It was a book that I remember loving and, like, even revisiting, like, as a kid, as I got much too old for picture books, still carrying, like, the same beat-up copy of Where the Wild Things Are. And it was the first time that I saw a kid get really angry in a book and not be apologetic for it and for him to sort of like reach into his anger and to find like something in him that was creative and like that out of control feeling was just I felt that a lot as a kid I would feel angry or a little bit wild and it was always something that I was punished for and so I think that where the wild things are just resonated so much with me because it was the first time that that anger like evolved into like this creative space with these great monsters. So I've always got a soft spot for where the wild things are.
1: You might be familiar with Julie's work. Perhaps you've read Dear Sweet Pea or Dumplin'. It's now a movie on Netflix.
0: I specifically remember it was like the first book I read that felt like it wasn't trying to teach me anything and it felt like it was just trying to relate to me, if that makes sense. As you can tell by the giant tattoo on my arm, (laughs) really struck a chord with me. I'm Lindsay Jacobson, and
1: this is Remember Reading from HarperCollins, a podcast where we talk about classic children's books. And on today's show, we're celebrating the late Maurice Sendak and his beloved picture book Where the Wild Things Are, which he both wrote and illustrated. The book hit shelves in 1963 and won the Caldecott Medal. It was a huge success. But as we'll hear later in the show, Maurice originally had another idea for the book. It included a totally different title and different illustrations. A year before Maurice passed away, my colleagues here at HarperCollins made a short video of him talking with filmmaker Spike Jones, who adapted Where the Wild Things Are for the big screen. Here's a clip of Maurice reflecting on the book's publication.
0: Wild Things was my first big, big book full color and text being mine and there was a big risk because as it was being done people at the house already were shaking their heads like they're doing with you now yeah and the book was bad; and it was terrible reviews no positive reviews no it became a very famous book but it took about two years before librarians began to see that all the kids were taken out of the library over and over and over again.
1: Throughout the show, we'll be joined by Tony Marquette, an editorial director here at HarperCollins. She'll give us deeper insight into
2: this classic children's book and tell us all about Maurice. He really wrote what he knew, what came out of his dream life, which I think must have been exceptionally varied, you know. I think he saw the world a different way than most of us do. And
1: in just a little bit, we're going to hear Rebecca Shear read from Where the Wild Things Are. She's a storyteller and the host of Circle Round, a podcast about folktales from around the world. Besides narrating the story for us, Rebecca will share what the book means to
3: her as a parent. I think the book points to the importance of using imagination and daydreaming to help you process things. You know, we're in this day and age of screens and screens and more screens and standardized tests. And I worry about where things like imagination and daydreaming can fit into the lives of children, where we can make room for that. But first, let's find out some more about Maurice Sendak and how he became an
1: illustrator. He was born in 1928. His parents were Jewish immigrants from Poland, and he grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Apparently, school wasn't really Maurice's thing. In high school, he concentrated on art and had a part-time job at a comic book company. He graduated in 1946 and got a job in Manhattan doing window display work. After a couple of years, FAO Schwartz, a famous New York toy store, hired him to do their window displays. At night, he took art classes, honing his skills as an illustrator. The book buyer at FAO Schwartz arranged for the legendary children's book editor, Ursula Nordstrom, to stop by and see his work. She was impressed and brought him on. Soon after, she had him collaborate with writer Ruth Krauss. Together they published A Hole is to Dig in 1952. Maurice was just 24 years old at the time. And as Tony from HarperCollins explains, Ruth and her husband, Crockett Johnson, took Maurice under
2: their wing. So Maurice never got beyond high school and barely passed that. He says he credits them with educating him. He would go up every weekend to their home in Connecticut and they would give him a reading list of the classics that he had to read. And the next weekend he would have to have read them. That's how he learned. They tutored him. It was wonderful. Maurice continued to illustrate books with writers and do
1: his own projects. And eventually, with Ursula Nordstrom as his editor, he ended up
3: writing and illustrating Where the Wild Things Are. Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another, his mother called him Wild Thing. And Max said, I'll eat you up. So he was sent to bed without eating anything. That very night in Max's room, a forest grew and grew and grew until his ceiling hung with vines, and the walls became the world all around, and an ocean tumbled by with a private boat for Max, and he sailed off through night and day, and in and out of weeks, and almost over a year, to where the wild things are. And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws till Max said, be still, and tamed them with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once. And they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all, and made him king of all wild things. And now, cried Max, let the wild rumpus start. Now stop, Max said, and sent the wild things off to bed without their supper. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely, and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. Then, all around, from far away across the world, he smelled good things to eat. So he gave up being king of where the wild things are. But the wild things cried, Oh, please don't go. We'll eat you up. We love you so. And Max said, No, The wild things roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. But Max stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye and sailed back over a year and in and out of weeks and through a day and into the night of his very own room where he found his supper waiting for him. And it was still hot.
2: The text surprised me. The art flabbergasted me. And the art was spectacular. And the edition that was available then was poor. Tony remembers the first time she read the book in
1: the early 1970s. She was prepping for her job interview at what was then Harper
2: and Row. I've worked on three reissues of this book now, where we get the art out of the museum where it's held, and we re-separate it. So I've seen the original art, and no book at that time did it justice—not even, not even close. Yeah. So, but still, it was spectacular. It was beautiful. And then, you know, you read it, and you're like, wow. Well, I- the first time i don't exactly get it then you go around and you put aside your brain and you read it with you know, more or less your feelings because it's all about feeling it's all about anger and fear and reassurance that even if you get angry at your parents they'll love you anyway and i think it has to do with that feeling of i can be myself and mommy and daddy aren't going to hate me and abandon me i think that The fear of abandonment must be one of the primary fears that children have. So then you you see it in a a different light. It's a work of genius.
1: So what would you say it was about?
2: Parents and children. Children expressing themselves even when it's not being good, so to speak. I'm saying that, and I'm making the quote marks for you, which the rest of you can't see. but. (laughs) Um, he's absolutely furious and he wants to run away. And he doesn't physically do it, but he does it in his imagination. And then he comes home and his mother loves him anyway. It's the reassurance that children need that they're not always perfect or good children. Mm -hmm. Ursula had a quote about the kinds of books she wanted to publish. And she said, I want to publish good books for bad children. And you have to think about what that means. But it's really just basically kids who are kids.
1: When it was published, the book faced some criticism for the strong emotions expressed in it. In a 1966 New Yorker profile about Maurice Sendak, Ursula said that it was the first American picture book to recognize that children have powerful emotions, like anger and fear and the desire to be loved wholly and completely, despite their flaws. And for Tony, the book taps into the ways in which children might sometimes feel, but don't quite know how to articulate yet.
2: I think children feel they have no power. You're more complex when you're young, in an odd way. I think you're open. You have no skin, no emotional skin. Everything is felt more deeply, Mm. more thoroughly. It goes deeper. You have no barriers to shut down. You learn barriers as you get older. But when you're that young, you have no protection. And you just feel everything. And I think some people never forget what that felt like. And some people forget it as soon as they possibly can, because it's painful.
1: And it seems like Maurice never forgot what it was like to be a child. In the 1966 New Yorker profile, he said, for me, that book was a personal exorcism. It went deeper into my own childhood than anything I've done before. And I must go even deeper in the ones to come. So you might be wondering, is Max a representation of Maurice, or kids in general? Here's what he told The New Yorker. He's in control, and by getting his anger at his mother discharged against the wild things, he's able to come back to the real world at peace with himself. I think Max is my truest creation. Like all kids, He believes in a world where a child can skip from fantasy to reality in the conviction that both exist.
3: And to keep going with this idea, let's now turn to Rebecca Shear, who read the book for us. I once read that Maurice Sendak said that all of his books that sort of take place in the mind of a child, this book might seem like it's a dream he had all night, but I mean, look, he doesn't get dinner and then dinner's there. He says that all of his books take place in a minute of imagination. And look how much Max accomplished in that minute. He built this whole world, this whole narrative with the beginning, middle, and end. And he created that end by processing, by being able to project what was happening into his imaginary world. And he came out all the better for it.
1: Rebecca remembers where the wild things are from
3: her childhood. But it wasn't until she became a parent that the story really clicked for her. As a kid, I loved the illustrations, but I don't remember the story particularly resonating with me. But then I grew up and up and up some more, and I had a child of my own who is now three. My husband and I often refer to him as our little three-nager because most often he's a bundle of joy, but now that he's a three-nager, he can also be uh, moody. He can be willful he can be obstinate and it's like we're living with a teenager and when rebecca thinks about where the wild things are
1: she can relate to how the story speaks to these ordinary moments that come with raising children
3: in those moments where he's in full 3 and we have our own little standoffs our very own little wild thing i'll eat you up moments every single time it ends with some version of how where the wild things are ends We find a way to reconnect, to understand each other again, to re-express our love, to find common ground. And often that's through imagination, through playing together. We reconnect again. And in a way, supper is waiting. And it's still hot.
1: It's that universal, never-ending shuffle between child and parent. It's stories like Where the Wild Things Are that remind us of these tough moments whether big or small, that we're all human, trying to figure out how to understand our emotions.
3: I think it's helpful for kids to read fiction to help them understand a nonfiction world. And on Circle Round, that's exactly what we're doing. We're presenting these imaginary characters and imaginary situations, but in a way that reflects the real world and that maybe kids can relate to in some way or another. And resilience is something that comes up in so many of our stories. But in this book, Max uses his imagination to bounce back, to realize maybe he did make a mistake yelling at his mom, or maybe she made a mistake yelling at him. But through imagination, you can come back, you can bounce back and realize that we all slip. And that's okay.
1: When you think about it, Where the Wild Things Are might have never existed without Ursula Nordstrom and the potential she saw in Maury Sendak. She's one of the most legendary children's book editors of all time. And without Ursula, we probably would have never had Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, Good Night Moon, Where the Sidewalk Ends, and of course, Where the Wild Things Are.
2: Ursula Nordstrom, who pretty much was the backbone of the department, had retired the month before I arrived, but she was coming in a few days a week as a editor of projects she wanted to stay on, including Maurice or Shel
1: Silverstein. Tony sat near Ursula and would hear her yell out instructions
2: to other editors. Things like... Pick up the phone, it could be the next Mark Twain. You know, no phone call is too inconsequential, but that was Ursula.
1: Ursula had strong opinions, of course she did. She was a tastemaker. And she challenged Maurice when he came to her with the original idea he had for the book
2: that ultimately became Where the Wild Things Are. Here's Tony. It was originally Where the Wild Horses Are. That was his idea. You've seen the, the little dummy. It was a very long, narrow little dummy. And it had running horses. I don't know what he was thinking about. I don't know that story. But it wasn't working. And it was tying him down, that much I know. And he and Ursula, he said, I can't draw horses. And she said, no, you can't. So what can you draw, Maurice? What can you draw? <laughs> and he said, well, I can draw things, things. But it is true that I think he's told this story several times that the inspiration for the monsters in Wild Things were his European relatives that would come to his house in Brooklyn and, as he said, eat all their food and squeeze them on the cheeks and say, oh, you're so cute, I could just eat you up. And he said, the woman who used to say that to him is the ugliest of the wild things. (laughs) Inspired the ugliest of the wild things. So... Hmm. So I think, again, it's that feeling of adults coming at you when you're small and squeezing you and just overwhelming your line of sight that is just kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. They don't mean it to be, but it is. And we love you, so we're going to eat you up. And that's what he used to turn it into a book. Why do you think this book has stood the test of time? Why do you think it's a classic? I think it's honest, honest. I think it's honest, and yet it's under the guise of a fantasy. I'm trying to think if he had done something like this feeling of running away and coming back, and it was the real world, it might have been a little more frightening. I don't know. But because it's a fantasy, maybe it's a little safer, and it provides a way to really let all of your emotions out without it being in the real world without it having real consequences. And kids, I think, just absorb it in a different way than if it was based in reality. Over the course
1: of his career, Maurice illustrated more than 100 books. He also did costume and stage design, including for operas. Tony says that music was a huge part of his creative process. What kind of music did he yeah, like? Probably
2: not Led Zeppelin, which is on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> on. But he... Uh, He loved like opera and classic music. Opera, concertos. Mozart was his favorite. Verdi. Did he listen to that kind of stuff when he was working? And in fact, if you ever get to see his originals, when he finished an original, he would annotate it at the bottom of when he started it, when he finished it, and what he was listening to while he was doing it. So it's a real history of almost his whole emotional makeup at the time. Tony started working with Maurice in 1981. He needed another editor. And in the meantime, he had been working with John Vitale, who was the production director, who he loved and trusted. And John suggested that we might get along. So I met him. I took him to dinner at Lutes. <laughs> and I was terrified because I said, what am I going to talk to this man about I mean, he's a genius, not only in his work, but I had read interviews that he gave. He was the smartest man I ever met, knew everything about everything except math. And (laughs) (laughs) math he had no head for, but he knew, you know, he read everything. And I said, I I have nothing to talk to him about. Well, we had a blast, an absolute blast. He's just funny, smart, kind. From that point on... Tony and Maurice had a great
1: professional relationship, but they were also friends. Tony told me a bunch of stories about the
2: time she spent with Maurice over the years, including this one. It was fabulous spending time with him. Went to the museum with him a lot. He was getting ready to work on Penthesilea, which was a book he did for our adult department. I think it was a Pissarro show. I can't remember, that could be wrong. But he wanted to see their black and white, so we went. And he would just stand there in front of it for half an hour, and I would say, well, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? Because what I see and what an artist sees in a piece of art is probably different. Mm -hmm. Well, what anybody sees is different, right? But it was interesting to me what an artist saw. And, of course, what he looked at was composition, placement of color. And he would say, you're so audacious. I hate you. (laughs) I hate you hate you how are you so brave I'm such a coward I mean he didn't hate he loved and admired them but it was like he was astonished by the risks that artists took the artists he liked he took risks he didn't think he took risks if you can believe that that's what he liked so it sounds like he was humble very humble he loved Van Gogh he loved William Blake not a surprise thought they were spectacular. And I, I said to him a couple of times, you know, there are people in this world who think you're of a par with these, especially like Blake. And he's like, that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm nowhere near. I'm good, but no. This strong
1: sense of humility also came across in his interactions with fans who expressed their total
2: adoration for him. He was grateful. He was grateful when people told him And this, they told him a lot, that he changed their life. That was something that moved him a great deal. And he was tremendously humbled by it. Did he write for his fans? Absolutely not. I mean, had he wanted to do that, he would have written wild things, two, three, four. No. He wrote for himself, not in a selfish way, but he wrote about what we were talking about before, what he remembered as having affected his life and his psyche in a deep way, particularly, and probably only as a child. But when he heard that they loved his work and it meant so much to them, he was immensely grateful and immensely humbled. I wish I met him. Yeah, I wish he was still here, mm-hmm. I miss him. He died 2012, I was in the hospital, and he, uh, I miss him. But he was 84. I think he was ready. I think if you've heard the interview with Terry Gross, he kept saying to her, I'm ready. And he meant it. I was very in tune with his life.
1: Special thanks to Tony Marquette of HarperCollins, the Maury Sendak Foundation, and Rebecca Shear. Be sure to check out Rebecca's podcast, Circle Round, which brings you folk tales from all around the world performed by some of your favorite actors and public radio personalities. The stories are set to original music composed by her husband, Eric Shimalonis. Some of the Maury Sendak quotes you heard came from a 1966 New Yorker profile by Nat Hentoff. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly newsletter at RememberReading.com. When you sign up, you'll be eligible to win monthly giveaways. We'll keep you up to date about episodes, send fun trivia questions and quotes to share with your family and friends. And keep tweeting us at ReadingPod. We like to read all of your tweets and try to respond to everyone. We love hearing from you. And when you leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it helps new listeners find the show. Remember Reading's producers are Stephanie Marudas of Cuvenda Media and Irina Zorov. And I'm Lindsay Jacobson of HarperCollins. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.